We turn again this morning to Psalm 119, the passage we're going to be considering, uh, verses 97 to 104. Uh, this is the Mim octave, uh, toward uh, the little bit past the middle of the Hebrew alphabet. But this is a passage that particularly focuses upon the love of God and a particular the, the law of God in a particular way that I want us to consider this morning. And so Psalm 119 verses 97 to 104. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we would pray for the Holy Spirit who... Uh, inspired all of these words, uh, who anointed King David to also be a prophet in that sense, as well as a psalm writer, uh, to give us your word and to celebrate your word. And for us as believers today to look back to this ancient text some 3,000 years ago and to be able to say, this was written not just for David's life and David's era and the people of old, but it's written for us as well. And that we might find out of this passage that which speaks to us and deepens our walk as Christians. We would definitely pray for that. We'd also pray that in every way, Lord, uh, you would remind us that your word comes to us not simply with authority, but it comes to us with great benefit. Uh, remind us again and again what Jesus said, echoing the Old Testament, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so we pray that we might recognize that uh, all of the scripture that we read and meditate upon and think upon during our time of worship with you is really spiritual feeding. So feed us richly. Uh, enable us to taste and see that your word is good. And bless us as we sit under the word today, under your spirit today, under Christ today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin by setting uh, some context once again in, in terms of some of the key ideas that we've considered as we've been looking at uh, the Psalms and what the Psalms have to say about uh, the Word of God in the context of worship, worshiping God. Uh, one of the key ideas that we find uh, really beginning at Psalm 1, but we also find it contained in this particular Psalm, is that of, of blessedness, that the path of blessedness, blessedness meaning true happiness, the kind of happiness that God's creatures can ultimately only find in reconciliation and in the presence of God, that the path of blessedness is the path of obedience to God's word, that is, obedience to God's revealed truth, uh, living in accordance with how God has designed the world, and also designed us who bear his image. 
that God requires obedience, not simply because it is his right to do so as creator and as king over our lives, but also because it is what is the very best for us to live in accordance with the way God has designed us. And God has designed us in such a way that his rules, his laws, his testimonies, his precepts, his commandments are, in fact, the things that are most good for us. But we're broken. We're fallen. Even as we've been redeemed, uh, we find ourselves choosing to live contrary to God's will. So not only do we have the will of God presented to us in the scriptures, the revelation of God's will, we have salvation. We have redemption. We have God giving his own son to bring us back to God, to restore us so that we can once again begin to walk this path of obedience, which is also the path of blessedness. But we all as believers recognize God must show us the way. God must make clear to us what this path is like. And that makes the scriptures, which God has breathed out, a most necessary means of grace. We need God's truth. We need God to sanctify us by us by his truth. And we know as Jesus taught us that his word is truth. But we also need to remember that these scriptures here that we find in Psalm 119, these scriptures which speak of the blessedness and obedience of the life that follows the way and the will of God, also speak of Christ. The law that David celebrates in this psalm, the law that he spends 176 verses spinning multiple variations on the same theme, is the law of Moses, which law also testifies to us of Christ. Let's remind ourselves that that is what Jesus himself taught. In fact, Christ taught that to his enemies. Uh, the Jewish leadership were his chief accusers. And in John chapter 9, verses 39 to 46, we have a passage where, once again, he's addressing them as they have accused him. And so this is what he says in verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Then verse 45 do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Now, given what Jesus has said here, I propose for us to consider this morning a way of reading the words of David. I want us to read David's words here in this psalm, in this passage, in light of the words of Christ. That is, I want us to read David's praises and teachings about the law of Moses in light of their fulfillment in Christ. And so the main idea of what I'm proposing this morning can be stated something like this. What David seeks and finds in the law of Moses we seek and find in Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law. So when we read this psalm, we should be seeking and finding Christ. 
Now, from a strictly Old Testament perspective, we would outline these verses this way. Uh, verse 97, love for the law. And then verses 98, 99, and 100, we would say wisdom from the law. And then the third part, the last part, the last four verses, 101 to 104, obedience to the law. But in in the light of Christ as the very fulfillment of the law, the outline really looks like this. Point A, verse 97, love for the law because it bears witness to Christ. And secondly, verses 98 to 100, obedience to the law because it is obedient, excuse me, wisdom from the law, because it is the wisdom of Christ. And then thirdly, verses 104, 101 to 104, obedience to the law, because it is obedience to Christ. And that's the approach we shall follow this morning, so that we would not be like the accusers of Jesus, those Jewish experts in the law who read the law of Moses, but who never saw Christ at all. So let's begin with verse 97. Love for the law, because it bears witness to Christ. Now, why should you and I love the law? That is, the law of Moses, contained in Genesis through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Or why should we love the law and the prophets? Uh, the Jews considered... Uh, not just Isaiah through Malachi to be the prophets, but they consider the historical books as well because they were written by prophets. Why should we love the law and the prophets and the Psalms? That would be the rest of the scriptures, the wisdom literature, Job through the Song of Solomon. That is, why should we love the law in its fullness? Why should we love all of the Torah? Why should we love it all? Well, the reason is to be found in what Jesus told his disciples on the day of resurrection. In Luke 24:44, when Jesus appeared to them, this is what he said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That is why we love the law of God and all of the Old Testament, too. It's why we make it our meditation and our study, because we see them as the words that come from God's mouth to feed us spiritually. We see them as the words that testify to the person of Christ and to Christ's mission and God's mission in his son, the Lord Jesus. And because Jesus said to the disciples, on the day of resurrection, thus it is written in the law, in the prophets, in the Psalms, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. We love the law of God. We meditate on the law of God because it leads us to a meditation upon the person of Christ and to his mediation as the one who reconciles us to God and God to us. We love the law because we love Christ, and the law bears witness to Christ. Now, then secondly, 
consider verses 98 to 100, where David is going to speak about the wisdom that he gets from the law. So we'll read these verses again. David says, Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding, that is, insight, than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Now, here's a very big claim. David is saying that we as believers have a greater wisdom, a greater insight, a greater understanding from the word of God than from any and every humanly sourced material. Now, these three that David mentions, enemies, teachers, the aged, can be looked at as though David is considering two sides of this question. For instance, those who oppose him and those who would side with him, uh, his enemies and opponents and his friends, those who would attack him and those who would want to be his allies. David's claim is this. Look at all the wisdom that the world might give you. Look at what your enemies might say. Look at what your friends would say. Look at all the wisdom that the world could possibly give, and greater wisdom comes from the Word of God. Now, how is it that this is true? How does Scripture give us a wisdom and understanding and insight that surpasses all the wisdom that might come from our enemies and our allies? How? It's because Scripture is God's revelation. God has spoken. The law, the prophets, the Psalms are his word. God has breathed out his word in written form to reveal what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of us. Now, that last language is from the Shorter Catechism. Our spiritual forefathers summed up the whole counsel of God in this way that the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And this last part, what duty God requires of man, is pretty comprehensive. Because almost every aspect of our lives is defined in terms of ourselves and other human beings, which is to say that the principal duty that God requires of us with respect to others, is the second greatest commandment. To love our neighbors as we love ourselves, which is to govern everything on the horizontal plane of life in terms of how we live and how we, ha how we act and how we believe. David claims that he has a greater wisdom, a greater insight, a greater understanding for God's word about how to live in this world and how to treat every other human being rightly as God wants him to that we might ever find from anything with respect to the wisdom of this world. And then Jesus tells us that the law, the prophets and the Psalms, all of the scriptures speak of him and their fulfillment in him. So the implication is this. What David seeks and finds in the law, we seek and find in Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law. That is, this wisdom, this understanding, this insight, that is greater than anything that the world has to offer, 
we must seek and find in Christ. Now, that claim is the consummate New Testament claim and teaching as well. The source of all wisdom is Christ. Paul speaks of this as his aim in writing to the Colossians. In chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, Paul says he's teaching them so all of them might, quote, reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, all that David celebrates in the law is found in Christ. All of this wisdom that is greater than the wisdom of the world is to be found in Christ. And furthermore, according to the Apostle Paul, the central part of that wisdom that is to be found in Christ is to be found in the cross of Christ. Now here I want you to consider what Paul has to say to the church at Corinth. Uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, especially verses 18 through 24, but, but listen to the context. Paul is writing to a church that's deeply divided, where there are factions and divisions, where the relationships are broken, where people think that we should follow Apollos, or we should follow Cephas, or we should follow Paul, or we should follow Barnabas, or we should follow Christ, that there are divisions that are hard and divisions that are difficult. And Paul has to address that which is divided in the church. So, in that context, listen to what the apostle was saying here, beginning at verse 18. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart, so where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. And Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And the key idea is that it is in Christ. All that God has revealed in Christ that we have the wisdom that is from God. And that wisdom is focused and centered and anchored in the preaching of what? Let me say that again. That wisdom is focused and centered and anchored in the preaching of what? Now I want you to pause with that question. I want you to hold that question in mind because I want you to think about the context, the larger context of the culture and society 
of the Roman Empire that Paul understood, that Paul knew and keenly understood with respect to the concept of a culture that was riddled with social injustices. The rich oppressed the poor. Between 15 to 30 percent of the population were people who lived as slaves owned by other people. The economy of the Roman Empire was in every way a slave-based economy. You could not perform any financial transaction that was not built on the backs of slave labor. The existing form of marriage and of the household was rife with social injustice. It was governed by the infamous paterfamilias, where the oldest living male in the family had supreme authority over everyone within the household. That supreme authority that was a life and death authority over everyone in the household, over his wife, over his son, over his slave, anyone who did not obey him, the paterfamilias could put to death. This was a society where babies were aborted before birth and abandoned afterwards. No laws prohibited this. This was a society where elderly people could likewise be abandoned if they were no longer any economic use, social use, any use at all. There were no hospitals. There were no hospice places. There were no orphanages. There was no social welfare. There was no social security. It is simply a fact of history that what we understand to be human rights violations were far greater in that culture across the whole spectrum of human existence than anything that people in this culture, in this country, experience today. This is not to minimize the brokenness of our culture which is intense and severe and something that breaks our hearts. But this is to ensure that you and I understand better God's deepest concern placed upon Paul's heart as the wisdom of God. And God's wisdom to address these injustices was to have Paul's message be this, Jesus Christ and him crucified. For this reason, it is the uniform testimony of scripture that societal changes must begin in the individual hearts of individual members of society. People must first be reconciled to God before they can be truly reconciled to each other. People must first experience the saving work of the cross before we can ever expect them to begin to live out the second greatest commandment. And that is why the Apostle Paul said, 1 Corinthians 2, 2, in light of the brokenness of the church at Corinth, all the division there, in light of the greater brokenness of all the social injustices of the Roman Empire, this is what he said, for I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So to return to that question, 
the wisdom of God is focused and centered and anchored in the preaching of what? In the preaching of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other power. There's no other way forward than the wisdom of God. There is no power to change broken cultures that does not begin first with the only message that will save and change and transform a broken human being, which is the power of the cross. Although, sadly, this seems to be a lost conviction among many evangelicals and reformed believers in our day, their message is frequent and forceful that we need something in addition to the wisdom of Christ, in addition to the message of the cross, in order to heal a broken culture. But I want you to think about the focus and focal point of Dr. Vodibakum, who has all of the necessary cultural and biblical credentials to speak on this issue. And, and Vodi points back to the cross. In fact, one of the te texts that Vodi has placed at the center of how the Apostle Paul addressed the hostility and divisions in the Roman culture, particularly between that Jew and Gentile division, is really in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, where Paul says, For Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And that is why the Apostle Paul's insistent message was this, as he stated in Galatians 3, 26, 27, 28, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So when you and I read these words, Psalm 119, when you meditate on the wisdom from God's word that is greater than the wisdom of the world, we recognize it's the wisdom in Christ that is far greater than the wisdom of the world. And therefore, we must keep our own vision and lives committed to this idea. It is going to be the preaching of the cross that is going to change the hearts of human beings. Only when we are reconciled to God, only when we see the greatest commandment to love God supremely, only when we see our purpose as those who worship and serve the living God, only then will we begin to seek to love our neighbors as ourselves because we deeply and desperately need the wisdom of God that's found in the power of the cross. And we need to keep this promise of God before us, that his divine power has granted to us everything 
that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of Christ, who has called us to his own glory and excellence. And then finally, the third part of this section of the psalm, where David speaks to obedience to the law, where we make the Christ-centered translation to obedience to Christ. Reading once again, verses 101 to 104. So David says, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Now, these last four verses divide up evenly. The first two, David speaks about his obedience. And the last two, David celebrates the law. In fact, he's boasting what the word of God does and has done for him. So here's what David says, first of all, about the law of God. He obeys it. But David credits his obedience to God because God has taught him. And this is the main principle. God has taught him, so he is one who has learned from God, and therefore he obeys God. He obeys what God has taught. And therefore, 102 follows. He does not turn aside from God's rules. He holds back his feet from every evil way. And he does this to keep the word of the Lord. And again, the main principle, it is God who has worked in David to will and to do God's good pleasure. And then secondly, we see David's boast, verses 103, 104. The law of God has done great things for David. God's words are sweeter to his taste than honey to his mouth. He truly loves the reading and meditation upon God's word. God's truth feeds him. And further, he can boast that God's word gives him such a perspective, such a viewpoint, such insight that David hates what is a false way of life. Now, this term for false means that which deceives, that which brings about disappointment, because it is essentially fraudulent. It's always a breach of faith. It appears to be one thing. It appears to be a good thing. But in reality, it is just the opposite. And God's law grants David the ability to understand this so that he could hate all of the ways of the world that are fraudulent. Now, when we make the translation from the law of Moses to the law fulfilled in Christ, once again, we can find a parallel in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Both of these ideas, that of obedience to God's law and then boasting in the benefits of God's law, are echoed at the end of chapter 1. So listen or read with me verses 30 and 31, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul writes, And because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts 
boast in the Lord. Again, the central concept is this. Christ is unto us the wisdom. Christ, the fulfillment of the law. The law that is the wisdom of God, the truth of God, because it is the word of God. That law, that truth, that word is fulfilled in every way in Christ. So Christ is our wisdom. But further, Paul says Christ is our righteousness. This word in the Greek has the most basic meaning as this. Living in accordance with God's moral law. In other words, Christ is our obedience to the moral law of God. He is the perfect obedience to the moral law of God. That obedience to the moral law of God is ours because God has imputed it to us. God has credited to us. That is the gift that we have received by faith, the gift of righteousness. And it is the most central outcome of the cross of Christ. Our moral failings imputed to Christ, reckoned to Christ, credited against Christ so that he suffers the penalty for our moral failings so that his perfect righteousness could be imputed to us and received by faith. At the same time, Paul says, Christ is our sanctification. When we have Christ, we have all of Christ. We have been united not only to the cross of Christ, we have been united to the resurrected Christ. In order that, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And here is the parallel of obedience. By our union with Christ, by the indwelling of the Spirit of Christ in us, our redeemed lives not only have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, but we have within us now Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith so that we walk in this newness of life. We walk in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord so that we restrain our feet from the evil that is around us because we see in the word of God always a lamp unto a feet and a light unto our path. And thus, we boast. We boast in Christ. And that is why we sing, Thy works, not mine, O Christ, speak gladness to this heart. Thy pains, not mine, O Christ, have paid the law's full price. Thy cross, not mine, O Christ, has borne the awful load. Thy righteousness, O Christ, alone can cover me. No righteousness avails save that which is of thee. And that is why we sing, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No powers of hell. No scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I stand. Brothers and sisters, read 
the Old Testament. Read the law as Jesus has taught us to. Read the Psalms and find in God's ancient word the person and the wisdom of Christ. Let's pray. It is our desire, Almighty God, that we would not be like the accusers of Jesus who would read your sacred word and find only a law by which they attempted to establish their own righteousness, not seeing Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law, the goal of the law, who brings about in himself the righteousness of the law, that we might have it by faith in him. Father, teach us to read the scriptures, to be fed by the scriptures in the manner that Jesus taught the disciples, in the manner that Christ would teach us, that we would know the sacred scriptures that is testified of him, so that when we read this wonderful passage, when we can say, Father, oh, how I loveth thy law, it is my meditation all the day. It is because in the law we find Jesus and our meditation is him is sweeter than honey to our taste. We pray this might be your work in us, motivating us to love your word and to love the one who is the full revelation of your word even the word made flesh, our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen.